0: good morning. I wanted to assure you this morning that as the term gets uh, further along and the pace seems to speed up and you hurtle towards due dates and examinations and everything else, that you don't have to do it alone and that uh, you are being prayed for. And the faculty in particular, but others as well, are praying for you over this term. So uh, I wanted to encourage you in that way to know that you are not alone. Let's pray together before we turn to God's word. Heavenly Father, we do know that there are so many things going through our minds at the moment, so many thoughts about uh, our current experience, so much going on in our world, so much going on in our lives and our families. And we pray, Father, you might take all distractions from us so that we might hear your voice. We pray that you might address us, confront us, write your word on our hearts and we pray that your word might do its work to the glory of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. The secularisation of Western culture has been going on for three and a half centuries. Most of our contemporaries would agree that this world is all there is, either now or in the future. If there are joys to be had, they are to be found only in this world. If there are dangers to be avoided, they are the dangers presented to us by this world. We have liberated ourselves from the superstition of demons and devils, angels and gods. There are no rewards other than those offered to us by the world around us and there is no judgement or damnation. There have been influential voices who have challenged this illusion over the past 350 years, but it's hard not to look around us and conclude that very largely the secularists have won. The secularisation of the churches is often seen as a more recent phenomenon, though in one form or another it has been a challenge faced by Christians as long as there have been churches some to whom the Apostle Paul wrote believed the resurrection had happened already, others that there was no such thing, past, present or future. Though Jesus distinguished between being in the world and being of the world, too often in the churches and in the lives of Christians the distinction has been collapsed. We concede so much to the thinking of the world, often far more than we realise And the challenge to stand out as different is watered down or overlooked or just plain rejected. It's outdated, out of touch and evangelistically counterproductive. We look like everyone else. We have the same aspirations as everyone else and so we live like everyone else. And the spiritual dimension of life has in many cases slipped from our consciousness, at the very least from the forefront of our consciousness. Our great joy is found in success in all its many guises. Our greatest danger is isolation or marginalisation or defeat. In a slightly odd way, we might see the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6 as a challenge to the type of thinking that is preoccupied with this world and has forgotten spiritual realities. It stands as a regular challenge to each of us when, without noticing it, we too forget that this world is not all there is and larger realities and forces impact us and what is happening around us right now not just in the future. For remember, this prayer comes after Jesus has warned his disciples about the shallow and superficial religion of the scribes and Pharisees, and especially the empty prayer of the hypocrites. They pray, Jesus made clear, they pray conspicuously and ostentatiously <coughs> in places where they'll be noticed and with words calculated to impress because they had forgotten that prayer is not directed towards those around us but to our Father who sees in secret. This world is not all there is. We have a Father who is in heaven. Success, notoriety and applause is not what matters most. Let his name be hallowed above all else. Our petty little empires that last for just a minute really are not what matter in the end. His kingdom must come and his will must be done on earth as it is in heaven and already the secularist would be feeling uncomfortable. Our daily needs are not simply the reward for our own exertions. We ask God to provide our daily bread. We are dependent upon him And forgiveness, God's forgiveness, is both what we need and what we need to give to others. You see, at each point in this prayer, we are being referred beyond ourselves to God. That's the whole point of prayer, really. We pray these things. We ask for these things. They are not things we can achieve for ourselves. The honouring of his name, the coming of his kingdom and the fulfilment of his will on earth as it is in heaven is ultimately his work. It cannot be done apart from him. So too the provision of our daily bread and the wonderful gift of forgiveness, these depend on him. We ask because all these things depend on him. And this morning we come to the last petition, the last request and again, it's something that we cannot have apart from God. Certainly not something we can perform for ourselves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The reality and ensnaring power of temptation is something we need to be reminded of, and we cannot deal with it ourselves. We need to pray. As one modern preacher put it, we are not up to this. And the reality and devastating power of evil and the evil one is something we cannot avoid. We need to pray for we are not up to this. The great assumption in this part of the Lord's Prayer is that left to ourselves we are in danger. Evil is real and ugly and terrifying and it is not remote from us. We face tests every day and it is very, very possible to fail those tests and to surrender to temptation. I read recently an account of the experience of W.H. Alden, the, uh, the English poet who was living in America at the beginning of the Second World War. He had rejected the Christianity of his parents and grandparents While he was still at school, his lifestyle was an entire repudiation of it. He loathed the message of sin deserving judgment and dependence upon a Saviour who bore that judgment and redeemed sinners. He was convinced instead of the basic goodness of all human beings. There was no such thing as natural evil, nor a natural inclination towards evil on the part of human beings. If we could just educate everyone, provide them with the basics of life, remove some of the things that are holding them back, then the world would be a happy place and we would all dwell together in harmony. But then in September 1939, Hitler's armies invaded Poland. Now, two months later, Auden treated himself to a night at the movies in Manhattan where he'd been living. It was, um, he probably realised but didn't make much of it at the time, it was a largely German-speaking area. And so a German war documentary was being shown, a report on the Nazi invasion of Poland. What it showed was sickening and terrifying. SS stormtroopers were bayonetting helpless women and children without the slightest bit of provocation. It was brutality on a scale that Auden had never seen before. Yet what was even more shocking to him was the reaction of those in the theatre around him. Kill them, someone shouted. Kill them, came another voice. And suddenly, in a split second, Auden not only knew that evil is real, but also that it's not just out there perpetrating crimes against humanity thousands of kilometres away in Poland, it was showing itself in the attitudes of men and women sitting right next to him in that very movie theatre. Temptation is real and evil is real. And they are both bigger than us and they are all too close to us. We need to pray. Lead us not into temptation. And we need to pray, deliver us from the evil one. These two lines of the prayer actually belong together. They're the negative and positive sides of the one petition. Nevertheless, let's uh, look at them separately for just a minute. Lead us not into temptation. It is a prayer that God would not allow us to be overwhelmed by temptation, overcome by it, succumb to it, It's not a prayer that our faith and faithlessness might never be tested. Right throughout the Bible, God provides tests for his people, tests designed to strengthen them in faith and faithfulness, not to lure them into sin. (coughs) Tests to build their confidence in God and his promise, not to cause them to rely on him, to humble them before him. The classic Old Testament test, of course, is that of Abraham in Genesis 22. Would he trust God and God's promise even when it seemed that he must (coughs) surrender the son who was himself the fulfilment of God's promise? And when faced with that terrible decision on Mount Moriah, Abraham decided to trust God's promise no matter what. As Hebrews 11 puts it, he remained convinced that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead if it came to that. And so he passed the test. The other chief Old Testament example is the enigmatic figure of Job. Job was tested by the Satan with the permission of God. Everything was taken from him. And he was given no explanation at all. He was never given an explanation But he still trusted God. He still turned away from evil and he still held fast to his integrity. At the very end of the book, God says to Job's friends, you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Job passed the test. In the New Testament, the one great example is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In Matthew 4... Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. It was a real test. It was a searching test. Jesus had been worn down by hunger and the weight of the mission that lie before him. He was thoroughly and completely human and his humanity had been stretched to breaking point in the wilderness. But he had been there, led there, by the Spirit, no less. This was a critical part of God's plan. He must be faithful. He must trust the word of promise which God has given rather than the offer of another easier path to the same end. And he was faithful. He was not lured by sin. His confidence in his Father and the word which God had given him remained rock-solid. Though the test was real and intense, he passed the test. (coughs) Hebrews will speak of how he was made perfect through what he suffered. That writer will also say, because he himself has suffered when tested, he is able to help those who are tested. In each of these cases, Abraham, Job and the Lord Jesus himself, the trials and suffering experienced by God's faithful servant Brings benefit and blessing. And that is why James could say at the very beginning of his letter Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we ought not to think when we're praying lead us not into temptation, that we're asking to avoid testing. If testing is a means of strengthening trust in God and his word, a means of growing in steadfastness, of being brought to completion, to perfection, then it would be contrary to God's character as our loving Heavenly Father not to test us. What are we praying then? We are praying that whenever the testing comes we might not be overwhelmed by temptation. It is a distinction that's most clear in James's letter. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, James wrote, again in chapter 1. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And then he says, Let no one say when he's tested, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself (coughs) tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, God tests us. He allows us to be tested but he does not tempt us. He does not lure us into sin or entice us to faithlessness or disobedience. That comes from somewhere else. Perhaps the difference is shown by one other biblical example, the archetypal biblical example, if you like, the testing in the Garden of Eden. (coughs) What did God actually say to the man and the woman? Simply... Do not eat of the fruit of this one tree. Eat anything else, not just this one. And if you do, you'll die. He does not suggest that this is a quick road to maturity, this is the pathway to independence, the way to an autonomous capacity to decide good and evil for yourself. Who is it who makes that suggestion? It is the Satan who lures them. And entices them, and who wants them to eat that fruit. You won't die. Your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. Friends, tests are part of the journey as a recipient of God's mercy, and their design is for good to build us in faith, to strengthen us in trust to give depth and reality to our steadfastness, to bring us to all the fullness of what God has intended for us. But the Satan uses our sinful desires to turn a test of faith into a temptation to sin. Of course, it's the same word, isn't it? Test and tempt, trial and temptation. And someone has written, God tests us that we may succeed Satan tempts us that we may fail and because our sinful desires still stir within us every one of us because we are not yet perfect and the war of flesh and spirit within us continues until the last day we will fail without God's help We are not up to this. We must pray. Lead us not into temptation. The last uh, three petitions of this prayer uh, actually have been about what we face each day and what we need each day our daily bread, the forgiveness of God and the forgiving Spirit of God, and protection, support, and deliverance when we are faced with testing and trials. We can, in the end, only heed James's word and count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds because we do not go through those trials alone. And we do not go through them without someone who knows how intense the test can be. But the test need not be a temptation. It depends, in the end, on which direction you're facing. Facing God and His life giving word or facing towards the illusion, the alternative to faith and the obedience that springs from it. You will be tested. Challenges to your confidence in God and his word will come. And it's actually a good thing that they do. Yet at these points and at others, you'll be confronted with the lies and clever deceits of the Satan Promising you more fulfilment if you'll only go this way. Promising you an easier way to the goals you're seeking. Offering you something more, something better than life with God and obedience to his word. And it is terrifyingly true that I am not up to this and neither are you. Don't for a moment think you are, that you're immune or you've somehow moved beyond this or that you could never fail. We are not up to it. And that is why we pray, lead us not into temptation. Well, the other side of the equation is deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. Like W.H. Auden, we too often think and act as if evil is remote from us, when the truth is it's very close to us. I know we ought not to give the devil too much airtime uh, to make him a focus of our attention, yet we cannot afford to pretend that he is not near and he is not active. His chief intent is to tear creatures away from their Creator, to undermine the faith of those who have been redeemed, to weave a web of deceit and lies that obscures the powerful, life giving Word of God. He has been defeated. He cannot win. The cross was a comprehensive victory, but he is still active until that day when Jesus returns and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. It's interesting, isn't it, uh, that this request that Jesus encourages us to make is something that he himself prays for his first disciples just before his death. In John 17, Jesus prays, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He was himself going to disarm the evil one in just a few hours at the cross. He was going to defang that roaring lion who would nevertheless continue to prowl around around seeking someone to devour. So he prays, keep them from the evil one. It is something that's echoed in the ministry of the apostles. The apostle Paul would remind the Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful, chapter 3, verse 3 of the two Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Evil is real, my friends. It is dangerous, it is near, and it has a personal focus in one whose only power is the power of the lie. And you can be sure that those lies will be sharpened and clarified and particularly targeted towards those who belong to Christ and most especially against those who give themselves to speak of Christ and call on others to put their trust in him. The Danish Lutheran philosopher Søren Kierkegaard once complained that Christians of his day acted as if they were safe and did not need to be delivered from anything. But if that were true, why would Jesus call on us to pray, deliver us from evil, deliver us from the evil one? So let me ask you, how much do you make of the reality that you have an adversary? And do you realise that he will stop at nothing to persuade you that God's promise is unreliable and his methods are ineffective? In the end, how spiritual is your thinking? I don't think there's a blithe naivety to much evangelical thinking just at the moment. Seeing the excesses of those who talk about nothing but spiritual warfare, we hold back from talking about it at all. And the danger is that we will assess what's going on around us. We will reduce our horizons to just what is happening in this world and we will be caught unawares because we will never have really prayed, deliver us from the evil one. I heard of a Facebook conversation this week about the decline of the church in Australia and even in Sydney and the solutions offered untold very largely centred around a reallocation of resources, better strategy and restructuring and doing something big and different and adventurous. It took some time, again I'm told, before one brave soul suggested the real answer was prayer because the real problem is spiritual. That's what I mean when I say I think we've conceded more to the thinking of the world than we realise. The context in which this prayer was given to the disciples was Jesus' challenge to a self-centred, superficial and ultimately secular way of thinking about life. At point after point, this prayer has pushed us in directions that expose how much we've been preoccupied with what we see and what we think we can control and how much we act as if this really is all there is. It is ultimately a dangerously restricted way of looking at what's happening around us. Friends, the reality and ensnaring power of temptation is something we need to be reminded of and we cannot deal with it ourselves. The reality and devastating power of evil and the evil one is something we cannot avoid and that is why we pray Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray that now. Our Father, we have no hope, no appeal, but your Son, the Lord Jesus. All that we've been talking about this morning is beyond us, but it is not beyond him. And so we pray in his name. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Jesus' sake. Amen.